Well, we are continuing in Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 12, looking at verses 1 through 14 this morning. And as you turn there, uh, one thing that I meant to point out a couple weeks ago, and I I forgot, is that uh, I don't know if you knew this or not, but uh, my wife and me and our family, we've been here for over a year now. And uh, it seems like it's gone by really fast, but I'm, uh, I'm amazed at how God has already knit my heart to yours, and I hope and pray knit your hearts uh, to ours as well. Uh, so that's something I wanted to make sure to mention uh, from the front, um, because I think it's, uh, it's a neat little monument to have gone through. So again, Matthew chapter four, or 12, verses 1 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he ate his He and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent? I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, the Pharisees asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep, and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and we ask that you would illuminate our hearts and minds. Uh, Help us to understand your word, help us to apply it to our lives, and help us bask in your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Eric Liddell uh, was born in China, uh, the son of Presbyterian missionaries. He grew up uh, mostly in Scotland, attending missionary schools He acquired a reputation as being a very humble man, uh, but also a really great athlete. As he grew up and went to college, he was winning so many track meets uh, that he found himself competing in the Olympics for Scotland in Paris in 1924. His event was the 100-meter dash. The only problem was that when the schedule came out for the Paris Olympics, the qualifying heats for the 100-meter dash were on Sunday. And Eric Liddell was a committed Presbyterian who believed Sunday was the Sabbath. 
And because of that, it was to be set aside for worship. So he did not compete in the 100-meter dash. Instead, he began preparing to compete in the 400-meter race, which was not considered his event, drastically reducing his chances of winning a gold medal. Now, many of you know how the story ends because you've heard this story before or you've uh, watched the movie Chariots of Fire, but Eric Liddell did win the gold medal in the 400-meter race that year. And then he went on to follow in his parents' footsteps and became a missionary to China. He died in a Japanese internment camp in 1945, just before the end of World War II. So Eric Liddell is obviously a great man and somebody who is worthy of our admiration. The question for us this morning is this. Was Eric Liddell being legalistic in his understanding of the Sabbath? Or, or was he wrong biblically in his understanding of the Sabbath, but what he did was right for him just because he was convicted that he ought not to compete in the event because it was a Sunday? Or was he truly keeping the Sabbath as God intended it to be kept. Our passage this morning follows immediately after Jesus' invitation to all people to come to him and rest. And the very next subject Matthew deals with after that invitation to rest is the Sabbath, the day God has commanded his people to come to him and rest. And so first, uh, we're going to look at Jesus' teaching about the Sabbath, and then we're going to look at the principles of that teaching, and then finally, how we should apply those principles. So first, Jesus' teaching about the Sabbath. Our passage opens this way. We're told, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. So just imagine Jesus and his disciples strolling along through some grain fields on a Sabbath. They're picking heads of grain and they're rubbing it to get to the, the little kernel of grain in there. They're doing exactly what you're supposed to do on the Sabbath, which is spend time in the presence of Jesus resting in him, enjoying his company. But the Pharisees, who apparently have nothing better to do, are following them around, and they happen to catch Jesus and his disciples picking grain and eating it. Now, they don't accuse them of stealing because farmers in Israel were supposed to leave the edges of their field unharvested so the poor and the hungry could eat. So what were the disciples doing wrong here? Well, the Sabbath command says we are not to do any work on the Sabbath. But it doesn't say what is exactly considered work and what is not considered work. And so the Jews took it upon themselves to come up with 39 additional laws uh, describing what it is to work or not to work on the Sabbath. 
And food was supposed to be prepared the day before so that you could avoid working by preparing food on the Sabbath. And so not only were the disciples preparing their food, but they were also harvesting it as well by picking the grain and rubbing away the chaff. And so Jesus answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. So the story Jesus is referencing here is a story from the life of David before he became king and while Saul is still king and trying to kill him. And so David and his men are fleeing from Saul and they come to the house of God and, and they go in and the priests are there and they're hungry, they need food. And so the priests give them the consecrated bread to eat. One of the sacrifices the people of Israel were supposed to make was a grain offering used to make bread. And that bread was specifically for the priests to eat. And when Jesus says to the Pharisees, haven't you heard? He of course knows that they have read this story they just have not put together what this story teaches us about the purpose of the law. The letter of the law said the consecrated bread was only for the priests to eat. But in this story, we see that David and his men ate the bread without sinning. Now, why would David and his men be allowed to eat the consecrated bread without sinning? Well, because God gives us laws. And the reason he gives us laws is to show us how to love him and to love others. And if keeping a certain law in a situation means we're not loving God or others, then it is better in that moment to set aside the law. Now taken too far, this principle could be used to justify sin, but we have to live with that tension. And Jesus is helping the Pharisees to see that God has given his people the freedom to use common sense when applying the law. And that sometimes there's competing values in the law. The other point Jesus is making is that if King David and his men could break an actual law of God without sinning, then surely Jesus and his disciples could break an interpretation of the law without sinning as well. Jesus goes on. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? Again, Jesus knows they've read this. They just haven't seen how it contradicts their understanding of how to keep the Sabbath. In order for the Jewish people to rest in God from their work on the Sabbath, somebody had to be working in the temple. And Jesus is trying to get them to see that if their primary focus in keeping the Sabbath is about rule keeping and obeying the law right down to the letter, no matter what, then they have to figure out how they're supposed to explain why priests are working on the Sabbath. Because that does not fit into their understanding of that law. And priests working on the Sabbath was necessary because the whole purpose of the Sabbath is for God's people to take one day out of seven just to rest in him and to enjoy him in his temple. Which is why Jesus goes on to say, I tell you that something greater 
then the temple is here. You see, the temple was the place where faithful Jews went to be in the presence of God. But Jesus is the presence of God. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. He is not only the place where God is, he's the place of worship and the object of worship. The whole point of the Sabbath is to take one day out of seven to rest in and enjoy God all day long. And Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you can stop working so hard, guys. I'm right here. Come to me, you weary and burdened Pharisees, and I will give you rest for your soul because I am greater than the temple. So he tells them, if you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would have not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is quoting from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6 here. And Hosea is an Old Testament prophet that God sent to Israel to tell them about their sin. And in chapter 6 of Hosea, the prophet is pleading with the Jewish people and their leaders to return to God, to stop sinning, to come to him and be healed, to live in the presence of God. And he's trying to get them to see that the struggles they're dealing with are because God is disciplining them and bringing judgment into their life to lead them back to him. He's afflicting them for their good. And then God says through Hosea, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. You see, the Israelites thought that they could live however they wanted to live, as long as they kept the Sabbath by going to the temple and offering their sacrifices. As long as they performed all of their religious duties, they thought that God was happy with them. They thought they were forgiven of all their sins because of their sacrifices. And they thought they had kept the Sabbath simply because they came to worship. But God doesn't want our rule keeping for the sake of rule keeping. He wants our hearts. He wants us to acknowledge him as our God and rest in him, find our joy in him, more than offer him our religious performance. The rules are there as a way to show our devotion to him, not as a way to check the box and make God happy with us. It's the same thing with anyone we love, right? If I bring my wife flowers and I take her out to dinner and I do all the chores that she wants me to do around the house, but I'm really in love with somebody else, my wife would be crushed by that. It doesn't matter how good I am at doing all the things she likes if my heart belongs to somebody else. Doing those things for her should be an act of devotion flowing out of my love for her. Otherwise, I'm not doing them for her. I'm doing them for myself to keep her off my back. And that's how the Pharisees were treating the Sabbath. God commands us to take one day in seven, not so we can keep him off our back or keep him from nagging us or prove ourselves to him or anyone else. He's inviting us to take an entire day off from work 
because he's taken off the burden of our sin so that we can come to him and rest and enjoy him. What else could we possibly have to do more satisfying than that? Because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the one the Sabbath is about. He is the one who decides what it looks like to keep the Sabbath. And he is giving us permission to lay aside our anxieties, to lay aside our work, and to just stop and enjoy him for one entire day out of seven. And then our passage closes with a story to illustrate the insanity of how the Pharisees understood the Sabbath. We read, going on from that place, Jesus went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there, looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. The Pharisees asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now the Pharisees did say that if someone's life was in danger, it was okay to stop and provide medical care to that person. But this man would have easily survived until the next day with his shriveled hand. And so the Pharisees are baiting Jesus here to see what he's going to do. So Jesus said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So this is called an argument from the lesser to the greater, uh, which means you set up the logical truth with the lesser example, and then you say, well, how much more is the greater example? So if my, li- my wife likes roses, how much more will she like a bouquet of roses on her birthday? If my son likes to play sports, how much more will he like to play sports in high school or even college if, if he goes that far? So the Pharisees had no problem pulling a sheep out of a pit on the Sabbath, even though technically they could have left that sheep there for a day, and he probably would have been okay. But how much more then should God care for one of his sheep who is suffering, even if it is the Sabbath? Then Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. So our passage closes with the Pharisees plotting to kill Jesus, probably not something that would have been sanctioned on the Sabbath. Also a violation of the sixth commandment against murder. Yet they were blind to all of that. They were so blind that they couldn't see their own sin, yet they were quick to accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath and teaching others to do the same. So what do we take from all this? What are the principles Jesus is giving us to help us understand the Sabbath? Well, first, notice, Jesus never abolishes the Sabbath. He assumes it. The command to take one day out of seven and make it holy to the Lord is still in place. We are still free to take an entire day and devote it to enjoying Jesus and resting in him. In the Old Testament, the people of God rested on the first day of the week after their, or sorry, the last day of the week after their work was complete. And now in the New Testament, we rest the first day of the week. We no longer work towards our rest, we work from our rest in Christ. 
It is the day Jesus arose from the dead, and it pictures for us the eternal rest that we have because of Jesus and the work he has accomplished on the cross to save us. But we are still obligated to keep the Sabbath. It is one of the Ten Commandments. It is part of God's moral law. And Jesus says nothing here about abolishing the Sabbath. Second, Jesus does not condemn the Pharisees for teaching that we shouldn't harvest on the Sabbath. Nor does he try and say that the disciples weren't harvesting by picking the grain. When he brings up David and his men eating the consecrated bread, his point is that if keeping the letter of the law means we can't meet basic human needs, it's okay for us to use a little common sense. Now, Jesus does not concede that the disciples are breaking a law, but even if they are, in this instance, it's okay because people need to eat. It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And however we decide to keep from working on the Sabbath, we can't make it so rigid that we deny people the basic necessities of life. This is why most Reformed theologians say the exceptions to Sabbath-keeping are works of necessity or mercy. Right? That's why police officers and nurses are free to work on the Sabbath. Right? Those are necessity and mercy. Uh, when I was a kid growing up, my grandma wouldn't uh, let us wash uh, clothes on Sunday because she thought that was working on the Sabbath. And Sure, it might be. Um, someone could easily decide to have not doing laundry be a part of how they keep the Sabbath. It would, it would be a wonderful way uh, to plan ahead maybe and get it done on Saturday or, or to just leave it for Monday knowing that God will provide. Um, but what if your children decide to hide all their dirty clothes under their bed, uh, which has happened in my house, and then all of a sudden it's Sunday and you realize that they've got no clothes for school the next day. It, it probably would be okay. Uh, even if your conviction was that you ought not to wash clothes, to go ahead and do laundry that day out of necessity. Third, Jesus is the object of worship on the Sabbath. And Jesus applies everything the Old Testament says about the temple to himself. So when the psalmist says, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Do you hear how much he desires to just be in God's temple, enjoying him, resting in him? This is the purpose of the Sabbath command. This is what our hearts should desire. And God has freed us to satisfy that desire for an entire day out of seven. Because of our obligations in life, we can't dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our life. But God has freed us from all of our other demands so we can take one day in seven and just gaze on the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. Later, the psalmist writes, How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God. 
Psalm 16 ends this way. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. You see, Jesus is telling the Pharisees and us, don't you see? If the temple is all these things, then something even greater is standing in front of you right now. If your soul has ever yearned and fainted to be in the courts of the Lord, if your heart and flesh have ever cried out for the living God, then I'm standing right in front of you. But you would rather worry about whether or not my disciples are doing their laundry on the Sabbath. Fourth, Jesus desires mercy not sacrifice. So we talked about this some when we went through the passage, uh, but the idea here is that God wants our hearts and not our actions. Our obedience to his commands should flow out of a heart that wants God to fill her with joy in his presence, that longs to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and his temple. So she keeps the commands, not as a way of earning a reduced sentence for good behavior, but as a way of expressing her love for God and as a way of seeking his presence at the same time. And this is where it gets complex. We don't earn a relationship with God by obeying his commands because we would have to keep them all perfectly from the heart in order to do that. But we keep his commands because he has granted us a relationship with him through faith. He's been merciful to us. We did not earn his love or deserve his love, but through faith in Jesus and his death on the cross, God gives us his mercy by not judging our sins. And he gives us undeserved favor by giving us himself and his body, the church, all as a gift of grace. And he calls us to be merciful as he has been merciful to us. Like Jesus heals the man with a withered hand, we are to do good on the Sabbath. So how are we supposed to apply these principles to us? Well, we have the Sabbath because Jesus frees us from our sin and our worldly labors, and then he invites us to come to him and rest for an entire day out of seven. And the reason he, it has to be a command is because we are so foolish and sinful that we must feel the weight of how important it is somehow. We should desire to come to his temple and gaze upon his beauty. We should desire to seek joy in his presence. Our hearts should desire to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of our life. So we're disappointed that we can only come one day out of seven. But since we do have other obligations, how wonderful it is that God has freed us to set those obligations aside for one whole day out of seven so that we can remember that eternal pleasures are at his right hand. When Jesus walked the earth, he was the true temple, the true dwelling place of God. And now that he has died and rose again for our justification and ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the church is his body on earth. We are the temple when we gather. And he is the cornerstone of this temple.
temple. Which means to keep the Sabbath, we must gather with God's people on the Lord's day. Peter says, as you come to him, and notice Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. And now Jesus, or Peter says, as you, which is plural, you all, as you all come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, now we're all priests who come and serve him in his temple every week by offering him our spiritual sacrifices. It's not a coincidence that this is called a worship service. Because like priests in the Old Testament, we come here every Sabbath to offer God our spiritual service of worship. Now, someone might ask me at this point, if we were having a dialogue, they might say, well, Pastor Patrick, are you saying that we're sinning if we miss church on Sunday? And my answer to that would be this. Why? after God has freed us from our sin and has freed us from our work and called us to his temple, would we have anything in this world better to do than to come to this place and worship our God one day out of seven? Well, what if I'm on vacation? Okay. Let me ask, is being on vacation better than gazing at the beauty of the Lord? And we all know the answer is no, of course not. But we don't believe it enough to obey this command. Well, but I'm only missing one or two Sundays a year, and my answer would still be, is missing even one Sunday out of the year better than accepting God's invitation to come and rest by seeking him in his temple. And all we'd have to do is find a place to worship wherever we're vacationing and make sure not to plan our travel so we're traveling on a Sunday. Well, but I don't want to be legalistic. It's only legalism if we're trying to check a box like a Pharisee to earn God's favor. It is not legalism if we're putting to death our flesh and giving ourselves to what we know should be good for us. The Sabbath command helps us see that if we're willing to miss coming into God's presence with God's people on the Lord's day, it means that we believe there's something better we could be doing than gazing upon the beauty of God and his temple. Well, my daughter has a chance to get a volleyball scholarship and the very best club team has games on Sunday. Surely we can miss a few Sundays for something so important. I, I read a theologian this week, this isn't in my notes here, uh, but he had a sports scholarship to college and he became a Christian in college, and he became so convinced that he, he couldn't play that sport because the games were on Sunday. 
that he ended up losing his scholarship and he couldn't finish at that school. But, but he gave it up. He gave it up because there was something so much more important to do. And what about the chance that we're missing to teach our sons and daughters that there's something more important than being good at sports or advancing in our sports career? Not as a legalistic thing, but as the reality that there truly is nothing more satisfying than gazing upon the beauty of the Lord in his temple. Well, we have tickets to the 49er game that day. Nothing is more satisfying than gazing at the beauty of the Lord and his temple. Now, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've heard this conversation before. Let me just say, Jesus isn't empowering the Pharisees, me, or anyone else to create a new law for how to keep the Sabbath. Sometimes life happens. If someone vandalizes your business on Saturday night, by all means, miss church to go to meet the police there the next day. You're free, right? If your kids are throwing up, by all means, stay home with them so they can feel better. But if I told you that I was inviting you to my house on a Sunday and I was gonna give you $10 million and all you had to do was show up with your whole family first thing in the morning and spend the entire day at my house with me, I bet you would go. I bet you would happily give away your tickets to the 49er game for $10 million. You would reschedule your vacation so you could come back on Saturday before. You would get your homework done on Saturday morning so you could be free all day Sunday. How much more valuable is it to enjoy God in his temple with his people than even the chance to get $10 million? That's why no other day can be the Sabbath. There is only one day in seven where God's people come together as living stones, as a spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. Yes, we rest in Christ every day. Yes, we rest from sin every day. But there's only one day to gather with God's people in his temple to worship him. And the fact that there is something else we would rather do on Sunday than accept God's invitation, dare I say his command, to be free of our work because he has freed us from sin and to come and worship him. It's a sign, friends, that we need to repent. Not to repent of breaking the Sabbath, but to repent of the fact that we actually think there's something more important that we could be doing that day. This is where the Pharisees went wrong. God is not as concerned with what we do with the one day he's given us to spend enjoying him as long as we're really enjoying him. And the one specific thing I'm willing to say our consciences are bound by is every Sunday to come as priests to his temple, to offer our spiritual service of worship to God who has freed us from sin and freed us from work that we can rest in him and then accept his invitation to spend the rest of the day enjoying him and resting in him. 
This is why our tradition, we don't have an evening service now, but Reformed tradition has typically had an evening service. Not as a legalistic way to finger wag and have people come back to church that day, which they're not required to do. Now, granted, it turned into that, I think. But as a means by which God provides weary and burdened people a way to enjoy him and rest in him because we're all so easily drawn to enjoy and rest in other things. So Eric Liddell, I believe, was keeping the Sabbath properly by not going to his qualifying heats that day because he would have rather been with God as God's temple, resting and enjoying him than giving himself the best chance to win a gold medal. He was keeping the Sabbath by resting in Christ, who he believed was more valuable than a gold medal. And if he felt a sense of loss and disappointment because he didn't get to run that race in the Olympics, I bet he repented and he told himself that even though it doesn't feel true, that being in church that day will be the most restful and enjoyable thing for my soul, I know by faith that it is true. Therefore, I will live by faith and God's good commands and not by what seems and feels right to me. He knew that to be in church on an ordinary Sunday was better by far than to win an Olympic gold. Just because it doesn't feel good to keep God's commandments or because we can't think of a reason why it's wrong doesn't mean we're being legalistic to keep God's commandments. It is never legalism to obey God's commandments. Well, I can't say that. Sometimes it can be if we're doing it to earn God's favor. But if we're doing it repentantly because we know it's the right thing to do, even though our hearts aren't aligned with it, then that is not legalism. If our heart doesn't want to obey, it is an opportunity to repent and trust that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. In fact, this is love for God. The next verse on the screen. Oh, we're a little far behind here. Sorry, it's probably my fault. Well, this is from 1 John 5, 3. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome. This is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. Jesus is inviting us to let go of our work, maybe even let go of our favorite recreation, and to believe that in spending the entire day, every Sabbath, enjoying him, that we will find rest for our souls. Let's pray. Father, we come as a generation of believers that have not thought of the Sabbath in this way. And so, Father, we ask that you would conform our hearts and our minds that we might believe that you are worthy of our devotion. Help us to lead with our bodies if necessary and transform our hearts later if that's what it takes, God to trust that to gaze in the beauty of your temple is more satisfying than anything else we can do. 
and that you, because of your grace and kindness to us, have set aside one whole day in seven to hear Jesus' invitation to come to him and rest and to truly do so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.